Amen. You guys with your short prayers, I don't have time to get up here. I will have to start running. And nobody wants to see me run. Morning, everybody. Good to see you guys today. Uh, Research done in the last decade indicates to us that 80% of people in our culture, in the United States culture, uh, whether they're religious or not, actually believe in some sort of life after death. It's very nebulous in most people's minds, but 80%, that just seems really high. I was really surprised by that. I don't know if that's changed. I said it's been within the last 10 years. Those numbers are usually fluid when it comes to research like that, but I still found that interesting. Humans have always desired for something to be beyond this life that we have here. In the ancient world, it was assumed, especially among the royalty, that if a king could build enough monuments to himself or grand enough monuments that it would impress the, the deities and he would be able to extend his existence on into eternity. There's a, there's a famous poem by Percy Shelley called Ozymandias, and it illustrates the futility of that. The poem describes the ruins of a statue that's out in the middle of the desert with the inscription, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And the irony of that being that the only thing left of the statue are the feet, and surrounding it all in every direction is a vast and empty desert. In other words, try as we might, we don't seem to have the capacity to do that. As hard as we may try, humans can't seem to pull off an extended existence by our own efforts. And even though... The research says 80% of humans believe in some sort of life after death. We also know that people throughout history have become cynical about any sort of post-mortem existence. That the attitude that usually is prevalent and has been prevalent all through the, the human history that we've recorded is that of eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're not going to be here. We need to enjoy it while we can because this is all there is. This is very true. I would say, of the disenchanted culture that we presently live in. In our Western, empirically driven worldview culture, it it leaves very little room for any acknowledgement of a reality that can't be measured or weighed or examined in in some fashion. We're going to read about a group who are not dissimilar from that today, in our text, normally we automatically assume that that ancient peoples, you know, were primitive and and didn't have any sort of problems with with uh, with spiritual realities or things like that. But we're going to find that that's not necessarily true across the board. We're going to meet a group today who are very similar to us in in our world. Uh, uh, we're reading about the, the final days of Jesus in our study in the Gospel of Luke, which we're picking up today. If you want to find your way to Luke chapter 20, that's what we'll be reading out of. It's the final days of Jesus before he goes to the cross as we've worked our way through this account uh, of Jesus' story. And last week we read about a confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders who were trying to trap him with this politically charged question about paying the imperial tax to Rome. Once again, Jesus was able to cut through all of their political and religious maneuvering to get to the heart of the issue. And basically what he was saying in his answer to them last week is that, look, Caesar represents this broken world system. So let him have his stuff and everything that goes with that. But 
On the other hand, God made us. We bear His image. Our greatest concern is our allegiance and our responsibility to God whose image we bear. So now today, another set of adversaries is going to step up and take a shot at Jesus. It always reminds me of those old kung fu movies where the villains would come one by one at our hero. Instead of all attacking him at the same time, they always line up, you know, and wait for him to... to either way, uh, we kind of have this sort of thing happening here with, with Jesus here. And uh, he's going to be approached um, by some people who are trying to publicly humiliate him. But once again, he's going to turn it all around using their own trap uh, against them, and he'll create this laser beam focus on what's really important when it comes to our understanding of God and, and what our priorities are in life, what the main thing really is. So with that, we're going to jump into our, our text. If you're there in Luke chapter 20, we're going to pick up the narrative where we left off, starting with verse 27. It says, Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. And I want to stop there just for a second because... We need some background on these characters. This is the first time they've appeared in Luke's Gospels. He's con- Jesus is confronted directly by some very unhappy uh, religious leaders. We know they were unhappy because they were sad, you see. And honestly, so here's the thing. And if you've been here at all, you, don't clap for that. Who's clapping for that? Oh, of course it would be Matt. But uh, I've told that joke. Every single time that I've taught through the Gospels, and I, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's just, you kind of get away with it the first time, and you're thinking, oh, that's cool, I did it, and you just keep doing it. So it's like bad jokes and sin, it's the same kind of thing, you think you can get away with it. Either way, what we have here are the Sadducees. They were a sect of Jewish leaders who were wealthy and elite. They were the aristocrats of their time and place. The Sadducees now were different from the Pharisees. In fact, quite different. What you would think of in terms of a comparison, not in terms of the specifics, but just in contrary or comparison, is the distinction that we would see between Catholics and Baptists. They're, they're all part of the same Christian umbrella, but they're wildly different in how they approach things or, or, or see things. The Pharisees were a populist, common man movement that was focused on being faithful to God. We talked a little bit about them last week, about their origins being you know, quite noble, really, but that got corrupted over time. But it was very much the common man type of thing. We've got to be faithful to God. The Sadducees, on the other hand, worked more at keeping peace with the Romans. And they really seemed more concerned about politics than they did religion, even though they were holding religious office on the Sanhedrin uh, and, and representing the Jewish leadership in that. Now, the Sadducees were considered the conservatives of their day because they didn't hold to any uh, other books apart from the first five books of the Bible. The Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch is what it's called. They didn't give any authority to the oral law. We've talked about that before. The oral law was the Talmud. It was basically the rules on how to keep the rules that were developed uh, during the, the uh, Babylonian exile. They didn't believe in any of the books that we hold to, like Daniel or things like that. That was all newfangled stuff as far as they were concerned. They only considered the first five books of the Old Testament as the Word of God. And according to Acts 23, they didn't believe in anything supernatural. No angels, no demons, no afterlife. And they certainly didn't believe in this idea of the resurrection of the righteous dead at the end of the age. Something that was introduced in the book of Daniel 
in, in the intertestament period, well, not in the intertestament, but during the Babylonian exile, uh, this idea of the righteous being uh, raised from the dead into everlasting life. Now, this is something that the Pharisees believed in. They believed in this resurrection, absolutely. And it's something that Jesus has alluded to multiple times as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. We could think, now, why are the Sadducees opposed to this? Like, they were very much opposed to this doctrine, which they considered to be newfangled and and not representative of God's intent. And we wonder, like, I've wondered about that. Why? Why were they so opposed to this sort of thing? Why did they need to publicly want to humiliate somebody over this sort of doctrine? The idea of a resurrection, we've got to realize, can be a dangerous thing in the hands of extremists. We've seen in our own world how people who have a hope beyond this life are willing to strap bombs to themselves and do terrible things for a cause that they think will earn them a post-mortem reward. Wealthy ruling classes don't want people to think like that because it creates instability that can then impact the economic steadiness that they are used to enjoying. So for them, it was better to call it out as a silly superstition rather than try to work out how to to properly live with a doctrine like that, properly live out the ramifications of that sort of doctrine. And like many in our world, just outright will reject religion altogether because of what we've seen people do with religion, rather than just try to figure out a way in which these truths could be lived out in, in, properly, in a way that doesn't result in so much damage or heartache or loss. So the Sadducees, wanting to publicly embarrass Jesus any way they can, they decide to pose a riddle to Jesus that they assume is just going to reveal him to be this yokel-peddling folk religion, and he's not supposed to be somebody to be taken seriously at all. He's just another one of these cranks out there in the <laughs> coming out of the woodwork. So we keep reading. Verse 28, that's the background. They posed this question. Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies... Leaving a wife but no children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Um, well, and so this is going to pose a riddle now. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, but he also died. Then the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them who died with no chil- without children. Finally, the woman also died. So tell us. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Okay, so they're setting up a scenario here, uh, and and honestly, if you can if you can if you can catch it, there's there's actually real humor in in all of this, and I'm sure that there were smiles on all of these things. But their intent their intent was to try to show this the silliness, the absurdity of believing in a resurrection. They're, they're setting up a, a a, a, a scenario where they pose a question about what's called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage is an arrangement where the brother of a deceased man is obliged to marry his brother's widow if there are no sons produced in that marriage. And the widow then is obliged to marry her deceased husband's brother. Never mind about what the woman may want, I guess. But they, again, it's a patriarchal world in, that's represented here. We don't condone this idea. It, it was just the world and the time and the culture in which this emerged. The purpose of leveret marriage is to keep a name, to keep an inheritance from dying out, especially important 
within the context of ancient Israel, whose, whose, whose very identity was built around their inheritance of this promised land, their portion of this special, unique geographical location where God was meeting with them. That was very important. And so to keep a name and inheritance from dying out, they, they required this. The law required this. This was how a person's legacy was preserved through a son who is going to then carry on the family name. So Moses included a section about leveret marriage in the law in Deuteronomy 25. We're not going to bog down and read it, but you can take note of it and go read it yourself. And that's what the Sadducees are pointing to. These guys who believe in the Old Testament, you know, five, first five books, they believe that this is an ironclad argument against the idea of any sort of afterlife, especially a resurrection. Their thinking is, if God intended there to be a life after this life, then why would he put a provision for leveret marriage in the law? And then they highlight a, an absurd conundrum that would be created uh, through a story of a woman who survives seven husbands. And they ask, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? The real question that should be asked is, doesn't anyone think this is suspicious? suspicious that, that seven people are dead and she's the common denominator in this whole thing. That's definitely like the basis for a true crime podcast as far as I can. Could you imagine being the seventh brother in this whole thing? Like all, all six are dead and all of a sudden everybody's looking at you and like, okay. <laughs> I'm just saying goodbye to everybody before the wedding ceremony. People are crying at the ceremony saying he's so young. <laughs> Either way. The absurdity of whose wife she'll be in eternity is why they pose this riddle. In their minds, the reason for leveret marriage is because this life is all there is. Why would there be any clause like this? The only meaning and value in their thinking, the only meaning and value to be found is, the, is what we can accrue right here, right now in this life. And the only way to keep it going is to pass it on to the next generation. That's the only means of achieving transcendence. The Sadducees wanted to highlight how absurd the notion of the resurrection is using, the, using an example that's drawn from this world. But that's exactly where their trap falls apart. So we'll just keep reading here. Jesus' response, verse 34. Jesus replied, uh, Marriage is for people here on earth, but in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they'll never die again. In this respect, they'll be like the angels. They are the children of God and the children of the resurrection. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised, even Moses proved this when he wrote about the burning bush long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died. He referred to the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living not the dead, for they are alive to him. Well said, teacher, remarked some of the teachers of religious law who are obviously, in my parentheses, Pharisees, who believed in the resurrection and thought, hey, good for you, Jesus. We're on your side just for now. Uh, but who were standing there, verse 40, then no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> forget this. <laughs> so they ran out of enemies in the Kung Fu line of people, you know, how about they finally forget it? Okay, so not only do they not expose Jesus as just some yokel peddling things that he didn't really understand, but they actually expose their misunderstanding of things. He reveals that he knows quite a bit and even quite a bit more than the scholars who were present. 
And they give him kudos for it. Notice that Jesus doesn't actually answer their question so much as point out that, that they're asking the wrong question in, in this. And I love, it's always just fun to me how they build this whole elaborate, like look how many verses their question is compared to what Jesus responds with. They, they, they set up this whole elaborate story and Jesus basically just goes, nah, you're wrong. Uh, you're missing the point. And he, then he goes on to point, how much they, point out how much they don't understand. And what he's getting at is that their question made it clear. They assumed that if there was a resurrection and life after this one, it would be exactly like this life, just longer. It'd be the same thing as this, just extended out with no ending. They were trying to connect the principles of this broken world to what God is planning. And Jesus says, eh, wrong answer. You've got the wrong question in view. Now, when Jesus says in the resurrection, people won't marry or be given in marriage, they'll be like the angels. You know, some have gone off into really strange territories uh, with this, uh, those words. Remember, Jesus is answer, answering a riddle. And in a lot of ways, he's, he's responding with a riddle of his own. I don't know that we're supposed to read this as an exact blueprint for what it's supposed to be like in the afterlife. You know, people have said, you know, I don't... What if I don't know my, my, my spouse after I've died? That doesn't seem, and I get that. I mean, I, you know, I've been married a long time. To think that I wouldn't have this relationship with my spouse doesn't seem like paradise to me. And if you're a smart spouse, you'd be going, amen, hey, amen, amen. I shouldn't have to tell you that. Anyway, I, like I said, I personally don't believe that, that Jesus is prescribing exactly what life after this life is going to be like, but he's making the point and this is what we're supposed to grasp, is that it's going to be different. We can't use the metrics of this broken place to, to understand or put together what's going to be happening when he renews and restores all things. The point uh, of marriage and children was to carry on a family, to propagate a line of humanity in the face of death. But in the resurrection, and this is the point he's making, there'll be no more death. That's his point in verse 36, they'll never die again. In this respect, they'll be like the angels. In other words, that threat, that pain, that present pain of our experiences in this world is removed. When death is removed from the equation altogether, life takes on a whole new shape and meaning in this. God's provision in Deuteronomy 25 was a response to the persistent pain that humanity felt and continues to feel to this day, but remove the pain and things are different. Things are different in ways that we cannot comprehend. There's no, there's no basis. I have nothing to compare it to because we've never known anything like what it is he's pointing towards. Remove the sting of death and the need that's being described in this scenario disappears altogether. Things are going to be different. That's Jesus's main point. And he's telling us something very important when it comes to God's priorities in this. And that is our calling is to participate in God's redemption of life. And here's how he puts that together. He he quotes a part of the Bible that the Sadducees accepted. He quotes to them from Exodus 3. I love that about his answer to them because he doesn't drag them over to the book of Daniel. He doesn't go to things that they don't accept. He meets them right where they are and points out from the words that they do accept that God spoke to Moses from the burning bush and introduces himself as as being, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He speaks about these people in the present tense, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am 
the God in present tense. And Jesus presents it as a clear indication that they are still existing in some way and present with God. And so his logic is that if that is true, if they're present in some capacity with God, in some fashion that represents existence to them, then why would it be absurd to think in terms of the resurrection? Why in the world would that not be true as well? God's whole thing, I mean his whole thing, and it starts in the, in the book of Genesis. God's whole thing is life. It's all about life. He is first, he's the first source of life and his intent is that of redeeming life that's been broken in this original intent that God had. Life is God's focus, a whole life that never ends. That's what's promised to us as his followers. That's what God is focused on when it comes to the human race. What we're putting our hope in, when we put our hope in Jesus, When we put our trust in him, we're putting our hope in this redemption of life, the redemption of all things, the fix for everything that's broken. And that is the gospel. That's the gospel. That's what this is all about. God, this this is what the gospel message is. God has broken in to this world to begin this process of redeeming all things, to restore all things. And that is accomplished through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's what we've been commissioned to be witnesses to, that there is life and life abundantly available for anyone who will believe it, who will receive it. The Sadducees put all of their hope in what power and wealth Uh, that all the stuff that they could accumulate in this immediate life could provide them. Their lives were built on this current broken world system. It was all about that, maneuvering politically, gaining power, gaining money, gaining possessions. It made them callous and indifferent to the people in the world around them so that they reflected the same values of this broken world so that they could plot to kill a rabbi that they disagreed with like Jesus because all that mattered was what they had and what more they could get. That's where they were in life and that is what we've been called out from. That's what we've been called away from. Jesus is pointing to a different kind of life, a state of being that's not affected or restricted by the brokenness of sin in this world. And that redeemed life in the resurrection carries important implications for our present life here and now. God's redemptive power is already at work in our lives because of Jesus' death and resurrection. That resurrection that we're promised, Paul described it as knowing the power of his resurrection. In other words, that resurrection's already at work in our lives. We're looking for a day. We're looking for a day when all the dead are raised together, all the righteous dead are raised together with him. But I'm telling you, that resurrection power is already at work in our lives, redeeming and renewing and restoring things so that we don't live like this broken world with no hope beyond what we can put our fists around. And that redeemed life is what we're called to bear witness to in this world. We have a whole new start in Christ. There's a whole new life offered to us in this hope of resurrection. Uh, A state of being where we're not measured by, by who we're married to or what we've achieved or what we own or who admires us. 
Jesus described us in this passage as children of God. And that is the basis for our identity. That is the basis for our sense of value, for our meaning and our purpose. We are God's children. God provides the wholeness that we crave through a redeemed life. And this then needs to influence how it is that we carry ourselves, how we live right here and now, allowing the goodness of that redemption, of that resurrection to work its way into our priorities, into our values, into how it is that we interact with our fellow human being. That directs how we treat one another. Let's not get caught up in the grasping for power or the accumulation of wealth that those who only have hope in this life are reaching out for. Let's keep our focus on this redeemed life. Let's live today as people who have hope for tomorrow and forever. Living today with a world restored in view. Living today as though the world is already a better place. Let's live out our hope uh, uh, that God is true to his word and that all of his promises are going to be fulfilled one day, no matter what we see in this present life, no matter how bad it could try to be uh, or, or look. Today, we're going to go out uh, to Seltzer Park. We already made that announcement, but we're going to be baptizing uh, some people uh, who wanted to make that public declaration of faith in this redeemed life that we're talking about. Their, their commitment to this life of redemption that's found through Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that the ritual that we observe of baptism is basically reenacting the passing through the waters into new life. It's connected to so many themes in the Bible. The Israelites passing through the Red Sea into the promised land. The Israelites passing through the Jordan River into the, into the newness of their nation of, uh, of Israel. The whole concept behind this of passing through the waters into new life. This is now the personal connection. According to Romans 6, the personal connection that we have to Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. And, and, and it's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like uh, uh, symbolic theater in a lot of ways. It's not like the baptism itself is the thing that saves anyone. The thief on the cross was just as saved as you and I, and he never had a chance to be baptized. But it's our way of publicly declaring, just like a marriage ceremony isn't the thing that makes a marriage. It's just that that public commitment of life to one another. And so in this ceremony, we go into the water, we identify with Jesus' atoning death on the cross. The full consequence of sin is removed. We, we join him in that, in that, in the consequence of sin and that being death, symbolically acted out by going down into the water. And then coming up out of the water, we come back to life with Jesus. And this is the declaration of our hope in that resurrection life. I love that we were even singing about that this morning, about the resurrected life. It's this, this, this life that he's provided for us, not somewhere off in the future, but right now, growing within us and emerging in, in how it is that we live. Baptisms, that sacred ritual that joins our stories to Jesus' death and resurrection. And baptism then becomes our, our act of bold defiance against the forces of this broken world and the forces of chaos and the forces of evil that always want to define us differently. 
to define us as an accidental random aggregation of cells, that life is merely the sum of what we can accumulate or who is approved of us in some way. Baptism is our public declaration that I know who I am and I know who I've believed in and I believe that he is able to to rescue and save me. I'm trusting in the son of God that loved me and gave himself for me. The life that I live, I live by faith in this one who loved me like that. I've passed through the waters of chaos. I've come out with a new life, a new hope and new priorities. I know who I am. I know who I belong to. I know where I'm going and that is life for me. That's the declaration. And that's, that's why we baptize. And so I will say, if you haven't been baptized and you'd like to be baptized, it's not too late. We're heading out to Seltzer Park today. I just encourage you to consider it. Uh, you can come up and talk to me uh, after the service here today and we'll, we'll get you set up to be baptized today. Uh, we've been given this great hope. It's a hope that doesn't end when this life does. It's a hope that stretches out into eternity. And in this short riddle that Jesus answered, he reinforced the reality of that for us. That hope that, that can't be argued away or, or, or negated through clever philosophies. It's a hope that transcends all of those things and meets us in this broken world to remind us there's a better world to come. So let's live from that hope. Let's share that hope with others. Right on? All right, very cool. Listen, there are some kids that, if you'll stand with me, please. There are some kids that are getting baptized today. If you are the parent of one of those children getting baptized, if you'll go and get your kids out of Kids Gate while we're singing this last song and bring them back in here, uh, if you do that, that'd be awesome. Um, And then those who are going to get baptized, there's a couple of adults who are getting baptized. If you'll come up and meet me here after the service and we're going to go over that. We're going to be meeting out at Rick Seltzer Park to do the baptism uh, I want to gather up with everybody at the gazebo. If you're familiar with Rick Seltzer Park, there's a long walkway that goes down to the beach. There's a, there's a gazebo right in the center of it. So let's meet up there uh, and, and uh, go over what we're going to go over. But Father, we just thank you so much for your word and we thank you for this hope that we have. We're grateful to you, God, that, that we have this sort of hope to fix, to fix our lives around. We thank you that you call us your children. Lord, so many of us have grown up in, in worlds where, in, in a world that, where we bounced around without any sense of value or meaning, where we've bounced from one relationship to another, where we've never found anything tangible to, to, to fix our hope and our hearts on. But we have you, Lord God, and you have embraced us, and you have called us by name, and you have promised us a life that goes on into eternity in a world completely restored to what you intended it to be. Stir that hope in our lives, Lord God. Stir that hope so that it affects everything that we do, so that we are witnesses of what it is you're doing in this world right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. shepherd I won't be wanting I won't be wanting
fields of green, the quiet streams. Even though I walk through the valley of death and dying.
Thank you, Lord, for the way that you do lead us like a shepherd through this life. Continue to shepherd us, shepherd us, Lord, as we continue to keep our eyes on you. Meet the needs that are present here this morning, Father. I pray that you, by your spirit, meet us exactly where we are to draw out of us what's best and to lead us into eternal life. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're going to speak a blessing on each other before we leave. Those of you who are going to get baptized, if you'll please come down here and the uh, kids that are here, hopefully you're here. If you want to join up with us out there, it'll be at Seltzer Park. It's, what is it? Uh, I'm not going to stick around here for very long. If you do have need for prayer, uh, there will be guys that'll be up here to pray with you and uh, see what God will do in meeting your needs. Otherwise, if you want to meet us down at Rick Seltzer Park, pray for good parking. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then uh, uh, that'll probably be around... Uh, I would say like 40 minutes from now. Give me that much time and we'll be down there. So uh, let's speak this blessing in each other. May you see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. May the Lord hold you steady and still in Jesus Christ. Hold firm. Take heart in his love. There is hope for you. Go in peace, you children of God.